Welcome to the Red Bank Rum Runner. I'm your host, Anthony Jude Sotaro. And so, Mr. Atkins, well, he was left between a rock and a hard place. He couldn't find anyone to rent the land he owned now that it was next to the gas house and the town cesspool. So, his investment was looking to be worthless. But, he did have a barn out there on his property. Hmm? And Mr. Atkins being an enterprising man, and knowing that the horse racetrack would be closed for another season, he had an idea. Hmm? So he started renting his barn out to men he knew from down at the saloons that liked to play games of chance. Hmm? Betting men to hold the card games to gamble down in his barn near the gas house by the river illegally. It was the perfect spot, you see. Down near the gas house, the town of Cesspool, down by the river, under the bridge, where no one wanted to go at night. And so, he didn't market renting his barn out publicly to just anyone, no. These were high-stakes poker games. Elite poker players. Discreet. Only the, how do you say, creme de la creme were there. Invite only. And word started to spread throughout uh, these high-stakes poker games hmm? that they were held down in the barn by the river. Hmm? And pretty soon a man from out of town heard about uh, these poker games. And they were coming to Red Bank just to attend one of James Atkins' high-stakes poker games. Hmm? Now that was quite a sense of pride for Mr. Atkins, knowing that all those men came to Red Bank hmm? just to play poker at his barn. That's right. Some of the men in town that knew about the games would gather down there in the evening. And Mr. Atkins, he would always supply a bodyguard there at the barn 
to act as security as part of the uh, rental agreement. And so, you could rent that barn out and hold your own poker games or any other games of chance or sport, if you will. Hmm? Why, you could do pretty much anything your heart desired in Mr. Atkins' barn. Right there, down near the gas house. The town says, right there, next to the Shrewsbury River, next to Cooper's Bridge, in James Atkins' barn. There was one group that liked uh, to use the barn frequently. And they were all uh, quite wealthy and powerful men in the area. An enterprising group of men themselves, shall we say. They started gambling on chickens. Cockfights. That's right. They used to bring in chickens. From all over for these cockfights. Down from Jersey City and from out west towards Philadelphia. And they would hold these uh, cockfights, these chickens, there in the park, down by James Adkins' property. Now, these cockfights became big business. Especially when Mammoth Park was shut down. High stakes games. Hmm? And so they formed a secret society, these men. They called themselves the Daffodils. And these Daffodils, you see, they were very wealthy, high-powered men in the area that would come down here and bet on these games of sport, these cockfights. And so Mr. Atkins needed someone that could live on the property down there and manage and take care of it, that he could trust, look after everything, hmm? manage the poker games, the cockfights. Our family needed a place to live in Red Bank. The land was beautiful, even if it smelled horrendous. So, we took Mr. Atkins up on the deal, leased his land. He let us build our own houses on his property. Hmm? Right there for the whole family. So we built an Italian colony right there around the barn. 
right up along Bridge Avenue from Cooper's Bridge in Red Bank. That's how it started. Sons of my grandfather, Don Vito Sotaro. My father, uncles, they built the colony with their bare hands, managed the poker games, cockfights. We did what we needed to do for our survival as we laid out our plan. Started farming the land, preparing to grow our grapes to make our wine. We collected bottles for Tom Calendrello for his bottling plant. Lots and lots of bottles. We became junk men out of necessity, but also as a disguise. That's right. We would hunt and scrape for metal, copper, anything of that sort that we could uh, make useful again, repurpose, uh, resell. And also we searched and collected rags all day long. That's right, always with the rags. You see, all these beautiful big estate houses all along the riverfront, the countryside. In these estates, these wealthy owners keep these beautiful garments for dresses, tablecloths, linens, curtains, rugs. They get a stain, it gets too old, it doesn't fit. They just throw it out into the streets, into the river, hmm? just to get rid of something that is no longer useful or wanted by them. Now, we would come along and see these garments, and we'd just pick them up off of the streets, our treasures, and then we go home and soak those rags. We go around and search for them. We pick all those garments up. The rag man, junk man, because we clean the rags right here on the property with the water from the river. Rinse them out as best as we can. We clean the garments and then we resell them. Hmm? We traveled all over the area, from Keyport to Atlantica Highlands, down to Long Branch, Asbury Park, and back to Red Bank by horse and wagon. As we'd sell our goods, we'd also sell some of our homemade wine or booze. The locals 
They didn't like that. Selling liquor without a license. Hmm? Why can't a man give another man something that he makes with his hands? That he grew from the earth? Hmm? A product I'm proud of. A little tit for that, too. Hmm? He don't like it. He don't have to drink it. But you know what happened? To some of those men who opposed us. Hmm? My uncle, Giuseppe Settaro, he had a boot black business in Red Bank. Boot black Joe, they called him. Hmm? Very successful businessman. Hmm? Shining shoes every Sunday. Got the men as they were leaving the saloons on their way to Sunday Mass. He had a great business going. Hmm? He would shine those shoes and then he would collect the coins from the men as they gave him their last tip of the week. These coins he saved them up, and then he took a hammer and we pried open one of the floorboards under my bed, where I slept, and I uh, put my coins there. Uncle Giuseppe, he taught me how to save for that rainy day, but this temperance movement, it was strong. Hmm? They tried to shut us down on Sundays with their blue laws. Didn't want us or Boot Black Joe out there working on a holiday. But I never heard a god complain. Oh well. Boot Black Joe, hmm? He would get the man's shoes all shined up already for church on Sunday morning. But they wouldn't let Joe in church. Huh? They didn't want him in there. That was no place for an Italian bootblack or anyone else who sold a liquor without a license to be found in the house of God. And you know, it wasn't just those drinking alcohol and gambling hmm? that members of this temperance movement were coming after, of course. They continued their assault against the now supposedly free black man and looked to drive the final stake through the natives of this land as well. You see, for hundreds of years, they wanted the natives to either be extinguished or to evolve and comply with their wish. But the natives, they kept uh, 
their own ways. Struggles between the natives and white settlers continued well into the 1880s, even in New Jersey, especially around Monmouth County, where many of our people lived. I remember it very clearly when I was a young boy. So, as they preached a Christianity across the country to the natives, word began to spread amongst the Native American Indian tribesmen. Hmm? The story about the coming of an Indian messiah began to spread. A story that the Messiah would one day come and walk the earth again amongst his fellow men. It was these stories about this Indian Messiah that eventually reached a sitting bull, who, like everyone else at the time, was only concerned with one thing, survival. And so, they started a movement amongst the native tribes, a ghost dance movement, they called it. Hmm? At first, the great chief sitting bull denounced the ghost dance movement as too radical too extreme. But when the ghost dancers came to him and he saw his tribesmen together praising in unison, he allowed them to hold their ghost dances down at the camp at Grand River. He believed that if the ghost dancer's story of a coming messiah was true, they could follow the ghost dance movement and find where its origins began. And then, maybe, they would find the Indian messiah was already present amongst themselves. Sitting Bull was a great Sioux chief there for over 6,000 tribesmen in Grand River, North Dakota. He had come to be known as a great Indian chief after taking credit for slaying of the great General Custer at the Battle of Little Bighorn. Sitting Bull along with Crazy Horse, led a combined effort between the Lakota Soy Northern Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes against the 7th Cavalry Regiment of the United States. The native tribesmen decimated the United States Cavalry killing 268 soldiers, including Custer himself, and severely injuring 
another 55 men. It was a great victory for the natives, but it would be short-lived. Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse's fight with the United States had only just begun. After defeating General Custard at Little Bighorn, thousands of more United States soldiers were sent out to defeat the force, the natives, and forced them back to their reservations. At the Battle of Little Bighorn, Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse had just defeated one of the largest forces that had ever assembled that time hmm, in the United States history. They would have to defeat a thousand more armed soldiers if they wanted to keep their land. And so, it would be nearly impossible for them to defeat the United States soldiers again, even with the ghost dance movement to inspire their tribesmen. But Sitting Bull was a man of great heart, and I believe that, though outnumbered many times over, he would have fought tooth and nail until his last breath to prevent anyone from taking away what was rightfully his. And so, when Sitting Bull heard about the ghost dancer movement, it was something he could have embraced. Finally, there seemed to be a way for their people to find peace again. He began practicing the ghost dance movement in the hopes of finding the promised Indian Messiah. As July rolled around, Seeding Bull allowed his people to continue their ghost dance movement until one morning, when his people came to him, screaming, something as terrible has happened. A white soldier has come into camp, and he is demanding that we put an end to our ghost dance movement. Sitting rushed out of his teepee to see what was going on. And when he reached the center of his tribe's camp, he saw a pale white man standing in front of him. The white man introduced himself as William Gladstone Steele, who said that he had traveled a long way, all the way from St. Paul, Minnesota, just to meet with Sitting Bull about the ghost dance movement. He was a quiet man, Sitting Bull was, but his voice 
held much weight politically when he did speak, and his tribe was quite large, you see. And they were ready to charge on his order at a moment's notice. And so Sitting Bull's tribe, they were feared as an army. Hmm? The locals began to get nervous as more and more tribesmen traveled and gathered together out there for the ghost dances down at Grand River. And they started to fear for the noises and sounds that they began to hear emanating from the middle of the woods down by the river at night. Once these ghost dances began at Sitting Bull's camp, there were rumors circulating that the ghost dance movement included human sacrifices and orgies. It was true that the natives would be scantily clad during the ghost dances and that they'd be writhing and gyrating in rhythm as they were consumed by the sounds of the music being played. And they chanted and moaned loudly as they danced and banged their drums to the tribal sounds in circles around the raging fires late into the night. But the white settlers were a superstitious lot and began to spread their own rumors that Sitting Bull's tribe was practicing some Satanistic religion, which sent them into a panic. In August of 1890, the American government heard those same rumors that were circulating about what was going on at Sitting Bull's camp. And so, surely the native shadows must have displayed a sensual backdrop of dark, silhouetted figures dancing and slithering across the mountainside together as the fires raged on and the sounds continued to fill the evenings. The crowds for the ghost dance movement were growing larger and larger every night. That's right. And so, it is easy to see how these uh, ghost dances would easily confuse those local white settlers. 
not so intimate with the connection these native tribesmen have with the land and to their bodies. Especially for those people amongst the temperance movement. For you see, these are just the natural elements of the human being's abilities to connect with their environment. The native Indians needed nothing more than what nature provided them. Just as I can now stand here at this trunk and hear the trees swaying together in the wind and how they have grown roots beneath their feet, reaching deep down into the soil, all the way down to the water table, and how they have grown branches high above, reaching towards the beaming sun. These trees are living, breathing things, just as I am a living, breathing thing. When you realize these elements of your being, then you see that there is no need for us to depend on anything else but what we already have. And we can go through this, our connection to the earth and her elements, because uh, we are them and they are us. So surely, he thought it was ridiculous that others should not be able to see such basic things as what I'm showing you now with my own body. And so here he was. Hmm? It was finally happening. The natives worshipping the coming of a messiah just like the coming of the Messiah that had been preached to them for so many years. Only the natives worshiping the coming of a Messiah by dancing around a campfire didn't quite look the same to the white settlers as when they had been preaching this to the natives while standing in front of a congregation. It was so foreign for local white settlers to understand the native's spiritual expression through the ghost dance movement. 
and saw they were very frightened by the natives. They thought that Sitting Bull was rounding up an army, and that those were war cries they were hearing in the night as they prepared for their attack. These natives were people that were so connected and so in touch with the earth and their bodies that they were shouting, screaming, and writhing as their bodies were filled with hope of a coming savior. They celebrated this, this news, the way they knew how, and the way that felt right for them. By gathering around a fire, and dancing joyously and ceremoniously in a circle. Not unlike the many celebratory cultural dances done by the Italians, Greeks, Spaniards, and the Jews. And well, just about uh, every other culture of mankind that celebrates in unison with their people by joining hands and dancing in circles. And so, they did it together as a tribe. And yet, they were chastised now and driven off of their land because of it. Here they were finally worshiping the coming of a messiah, like the one that had been preached to them by white settlers. They were adapting to this new world in their own way. And yet, they were still being condemned for it. So, Eventually, the local settlers couldn't take it anymore. Things were getting out of their control, you see. But they did have one thing there on their side this time. They had the U.S. Army. The natives had always been afraid of the U.S. Army due to what they had done to them in the past in places like the Wounded Knee. So, the locals would get together and go to the U.S. Army, saying the federal government needed to step in that they feared for their safety for Sitting Bull's Sioux tribe, since they didn't know what these ghost dances and ghost dancers were doing late into the night in the middle of the woods. 
the natives were afraid that if something happened out of their control, like a stampede or a falling tree branch, while they were dancing, that it might trigger some sort of attack from the Sioux tribe. They feared that Sitting Bull's band of warriors, and so they went to the U.S. Army requesting help in protecting them from a violent confrontations with the Sioux tribe. The U.S. Army responded by sending General Nelson Miles to Grand River to the settlement. General Miles would later become a hero of sorts amongst the native tribes because he was one of the first Americans to go out and to try and understand what made these natives tick psychologically speaking. Hmm? Kind of like a crazy horse, Coster's nemesis, who famously said that he understood how it must feel for a warrior who has rode many days and fought many battles to sit down and eat with his enemy because he had done so himself. General Miles was also a man who understood how important Victory is for a warrior. And so, after meeting Sitting Bull and learning about the ghost dance movement from him personally, General Miles decided to confront the Sioux chief, take him into custody, and then disarm the tribe, as he had done with other tribes in the past. General Miles promised Sitting Bull and his tribe that provided they disperse and go home quietly and promised to give up their guns and horses in a peaceful manner that no harm would come their way. They just had to go And so, Sitting Bull was warned by the federal government. The feds told him that he needed to control the ghost dance movement, stop his people from gathering and dancing on their land down at Grand River that if they didn't stand down, there would be consequences. Sitting Bull thought about it for a while. Days passed. The ghost dances 
continued. Then, one night, with 200 men, the feds came for them. Hmm? For the whole Sioux tribe, along with Sitting Bull. He stalled when they asked him to surrender, and then they shot him right there. They killed one of the last great Indian chiefs, point blank, that night. Seizing bull. The natives took down some federal officers themselves, but it was a massacre. The tribesmen tried to fight back, but they were defeated. And well, that was the end of it. The feds had won. While protests erupted from New York City to San Francisco and even as far as Russia, it didn't matter. The natives were on a reservation now and under federal control. They had been chased off their land once again. They were being hunted. Just were dancing in circles around the fire. The feds said they were going to take down their culture piece by piece, starting with their songs and dances. And so, you can see how tragic it all was. The ghost dance movement, gone wrong, had become its opposite now. People, they don't even know that this happened anymore, but it did. And it will tell you what happens when people get scared of culture that is different from their own. The natives were notified that they could no longer practice these demonic dances to which they were accustomed. And so, the natives, being people that had been outlawed for hundreds of years already, by other white settlers. Now would also be outlawed in their own spiritual practices that were bestowed upon them by the white settlers themselves. In March, of 1891. They came right at us Italians as well, down in New Orleans, only a few months after their standoff with Sitting Bull. 
That's right. Dagos, they called us then. Hmm? Dark, Italian, dirty, greasy. Certainly didn't have it as bad as the black men or the natives. But at the time, that was almost like choosing a different seat on the Titanic, now wasn't it? Hmm? We were all going down either way. And so, the people in power in New Orleans, they conspired. The whole city brought it down, the people down on the docks to drive the Italians out. But you know what the Italians did? Hmm? Did they fight back using their fists like most would have done? No, they didn't. Hmm? See, the Italian has a stronger weapon in his hand than he knows, namely his brain. Hmm? And so, rather than fighting back with the weapons of wood and iron, we used the only thing we had that was more powerful than that, words. And we taught them to fuck off. Hmm? And they did. Because the Italians were right, you see. And if they wouldn't have listened to us, then it would be too late for them by now. Which was exactly what happened. We were much smarter than they had given us credit for at first, down there in New Orleans. Our businesses were expanding rapidly because we came over with full operations. Hmm? Well thought out plans. We didn't need any middleman. We knew how to grow and make our own alcohol, bottled it and shipped it all ourselves. And so they knew they needed to act now and take us out before we became too powerful and owned all the docks. And so, that's exactly what they did in New Orleans in March of 1891. Framed those poor, innocent men, kids, condemned them. Even after they were given a trial and found not guilty, they let the prison they had them all locked up in, be overtaken by an angry mob of 12,000 people. 
and their bodies dragged through the streets before tying them up and hanging them from their necks. Bodies left swinging like the second hand of a clock that slowly losing its time, fading slowly until it sticks its last top. I remember my mother telling me of a letter that she received from her cousin back in New Orleans, written on a piece of paper she had torn out of a Bible. Tell them to leave and go north. It's our only hope now for survival. And the ramifications and the fallout from the relations between America and Italy from after the lynchings in New Orleans were harsh. And they were immediate. Why, we were almost at war with Italy. Signor Imbriani expressed what everyone felt when he said he believed that President Harrison could have done much more to intervene while they had those prisoners locked up in New Orleans before the prison was breached. And President Harrison could have pressed the government to find some sort of justice for their murderers. But there was silence from the White House and Washington on the issue. Members of the temperance movement were feeling emboldened. Just a few weeks after the lynchings in New Orleans, law enforcement began to cross the line themselves when they stormed a prison cell in Walla Walla, Washington with armed men. You see, A.J. Hunt was a notorious gambler in the area, and he had been locked up the previous evening. He had been down at Rose's saloon when he got in an argument with a private miller and private cutter who were having drinks there, pulled out the revolver from out of his waistcoat hmm? and shot Private Miller in the chest, sending him to the ground like an accordion having the air released from it. With over 200 men dressed as military soldiers, he felt the wrath of the entire United States 4th Cavalry when they secured 
the entire prison and cordoned off the courthouse, dragged that gambler, AJ Hunt, out onto the street and opened fire on the unarmed prisoner. Coroner hmm? found at least 16 gunshot wounds in his body. But there were so many gunshots that were so close together, they couldn't tell for certain how many bullet wounds there actually were. Nor could they say for certain which gun. And gunshot wound was the lethal one. They ruled the obvious. That Hunt had died from gunshot wounds. But his hand and skull were also crushed at the left temple from blunt force trauma of some sort. The mortician placed Hunt's remains on display in the middle of the city center for days as the local gamblers gathered more money and took up a collection to cover his funeral expenses. The police officer who had shot A.J. Hunt, well, he was exonerated from any wrongdoing under the National Defense Act, which allowed for military personnel to enforce civilian law with impunity, as long as it ensured public security and order. The temperance movement cheered on the news of the latest string of events as a sign that their voices were being heard. But they couldn't have been more wrong. Within days of the incident in Walla Walla, people were brutally beaten in saloons everywhere. There was no rhyme or reason to it. Service members would walk into a place and open fire on whoever happened to be in there at the time. At least 30 reported incidents of tragic violence were being recorded over the next three weeks. The military police were becoming increasingly violent in their efforts to keep up appearances and despite being absolutely out of control. No one was safe from them. Not even elected officials who happened to be walking down the street minding their own business. The police ran straight up to Mayor Bally 
and kicked him so hard in the groin that he dropped to his knees in pain. He was bleeding from between his legs after they put their boots right into his dress pants and walked away laughing, leaving the mayor crying on the sidewalk. The people were beginning to fear for their lives as it seemed like a new law was being enforced every day, each one more unreasonable than the last. The police had been given the right to arrest anyone they felt was a threat to public safety, no matter what those threats were. So now, instead of just assaulting people randomly, now the police could arrest them for having a beer or owning a rifle or not understanding English so well or anything really. Hmm? They targeted immigrants and Native Americans especially as women of color were assumed to be prostitutes regardless of their station in life. Men could beat them or shoot them, and there was nothing anyone could do about it, as long as they made a claim that it was self-defense. The people had all been reduced to second-class citizens overnight, despite having lived in this place for generations, going back hundreds of years. 